Scripture passage for Pastor Charlie's sermon this morning is Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life that and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for who you are. I praise you for how you reveal yourself to us in the scripture and in human stories. I thank you for what you revealed yourself to be through the story and the reality of creation. And I thank you for what you've revealed yourself to be in this story as well. And I pray, God, that you would open up our eyes today, both to grieve at our sin and to rejoice at your mercy. Please help us, Father, not to hide from the reality of the things that our ancestors have done and that we have done, but also, Father, hide us not from the reality of the glory of your mercy, ultimately in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that somehow through this story today that we would all be released from the power of our sin, from the guilt of our sin, and that some might even come to believe in Jesus for the very first time as they see you prophesy about him here already in Genesis chapter 3. Lord, I offer myself to you, and we all offer our ears and our hearts to you, and pray that you would come teach us now for the glory of your name and the good of our souls, we pray. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we have been meditating on the the glory of God as displayed in the story of creation, and specifically, we looked at just a few aspects of that. There's so much that we could have pointed out, but we meditated a little bit on the sovereignty of God in creation, the power of God that was displayed in creation, the wisdom of God in creation, the goodness of God in creation, and ultimately, we saw the depth of the relational nature of God as displayed in creation. And beloved, it's so important, especially about that last point, it's very important that we see that God, in creating humankind the way he did in his image, was trying to signify to us not only that he's a plurality living in unity, that he's three persons living as one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. He was not only trying to signify that to us, but he was trying to show us the depth of the passion and the intimacy that exists within the being of God. I think that that is probably the more important point. That God would consider the love between a man and a woman in the context of lifelong marriage with all that that means to image his being to the world says so much to us about how deeply relational God is, about how passionate he is, about how loving he is, about how intimate he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that even the physical aspects of intimacy in a marriage image the inner being, the inner workings of the being of God. Not so much in the physical details of that, but in the depth of the passion and the depth of the intimacy. This was trying to be mirrored to the world through the marriage relationship. Behold your God. When the Bible says that God is love, it really means it. God is a lover. He's passionate, he's intimate, he's deeply relational. And I do believe this is the height of the revelation of the being of God in creation, and we can never forget it, beloved. As we move on from Genesis 1 and 2 now, we're going to start to see other aspects of the being of God. Beginning today, we will see his justice and his anger towards sin. In chapter 6, we'll see what I consider to be the height of the display of the wrath of God in the whole history of the world. But as we see the righteous anger of God manifest itself, we have to remember what we learned from Genesis 1 and 2 because these things never change. 
God is love to the core of His being. He's a passionate lover. And this is always true of Him. Where preachers of old got it wrong in preaching about the wrath of God was they taught not only that God is angry about sin, but that God is an angry God. They gave the the sense to people that God just wakes up in the morning. I know He doesn't wake up, but you get the point. That God wakes up and He's just angry. He's just always angry. But that's not true of God. God is a happy God. God is a loving God. He's a passionate God, a relational God. And the reason He's angry at sin is because He so values the things that He values. You cannot possibly love something deeply without being angry at the things that threaten that thing you love so much. Believe me, if something comes against my marriage, I will get very angry. I will stand up and defend my marriage to the death. And I mean that because I love Kim with all of my heart. And God, in order to love the things He loves, must hate certain things as well. But that doesn't mean He's an angry person. God is a loving, a deeply relational, passionate, intimate, loving person. And the marriage relationship is trying to reflect this mainly about God. It's trying to open our eyes about God and how I pray with all my heart that we will never, ever, ever forget these facts about Him. Now, the story of creation in Genesis 1-2 through 2 is a really, a very glorious story. And as we've been saying, it pinnacles in 225 on a very high note, on a very hopeful note, on a very uh, joy-filled note, with a lot of promise, a lot of anticipation about what will come and what's going to be next. If you're just reading the story in a way like you've never heard it before, you're kind of on the edge of your seat and just wondering, what's life going to be like for this man and this woman who have now become one and who share in such intimacy? And I must admit to you that in my heart, I wish the story took a different turn at this point. I really do. I don't know how much time transpired between the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 3. There's not even a verse inserted there about what life was like. But we don't know, was it a month? Was it a year? Was it 10 years? Was it 25 years? I don't know how much time transpired there. But I sure do wish the Bible included something about what life was like at that time. I just long to know what was it like for Adam and and Eve to live in relational unity toward God, toward one another, toward the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and even the environment. What What was that like? What would life look like in a perfect world designed by God? For whatever reason, in His wisdom, He has decided to hide that from us. He didn't let us know at all what it was like to live in that kind of a state. But very quickly, we go from the heights of creation to the depths of despair in the matter of just one verse. And I must confess to you that over the last several weeks, as I begin meditating more deeply on Genesis 3, more than, than I ever have in my life, I just began to feel very, very sad. I just felt the, the weight of the sadness of sin entering the world. I felt the weight of the sadness of these people for whom God had done so much that they so quickly turned their eyes away from the Lord, turned their minds away from Him, and decided to follow their own wisdom instead of His. How could we, in Adam and in Eve, how could we treat our Creator that way? That question just makes me feel very, very sad. But I must also say, that the more I reflected on this chapter and read the words very carefully and, and just let the story reveal God to me, I began to have a rising sense of joy because I saw that in Genesis 3, things are revealed about God that are just as glorious as anything we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And in fact, had sin not entered the world, these things about God would never have been known in the way that we know them. 
In Genesis 1, the story of creation reveals, among other things, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the relational nature of God. Genesis 3 reveals to us the holiness of God, that He cannot tolerate sin. It displays to us the justice of God, that He will punish sin. He must punish sin, but He does it in a way that fits the sin. And, to me, the pinnacle of Genesis 3 is it displays to us the mercy of God who has determined to overcome sin, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and in this way, show us more and more of the glory of who He is. In fact, I will show you today that the whole entire gospel of Jesus Christ is both prophesied and prefigured in Genesis 3, in my mind, in very, very clear terms. Just as God had spoke literal light into literal darkness in Genesis 1, in Genesis 3, He speaks spiritual light into spiritual darkness. He already begins to overcome the problem of sin just about exactly at the time that it began. And so, at the end of the day, I came to see much glory and to get much joy out of Genesis 3, and I hope to share that with you today. Before we go into the specifics of the story, though, I just want to encourage us about something. I want to say to you that you shouldn't allow, uh, disallow yourselves the, the feeling of sadness when you read a story like this in the Bible. There are many other stories that display our sin, the depth of our sin, the nature of our sin. And I think there's an instinct, there at least is in me, to sort of hold that at arm's length to be a happy Christian, to not think too much about it, to just think about the mercy of God and not think about the depth of my sin. But, beloved, if we let the sadness of our sin descend upon us, what it does is it sets us up for the joy of seeing the mercy of God, the glory of the grace of God. Mercy only takes on meaning where there's been an offense, right? If you haven't offended me, I have no way to be merciful towards you. And the more you have offended me, the more chance I have to be merciful towards you. So we shouldn't uh, disallow ourselves from seeing the depth of the offense. Imagine that you owe somebody 20 bucks. And you go to pay them their 20 bucks. And as you lift out your hand, they say, no, the debt's been covered. You don't owe me anything. You can keep your money and, and have a nice day. Well, that would be a very nice gesture, wouldn't it? I mean, it's only 20 bucks, but 20 bucks is 20 bucks. And if you're going to forgive me that debt, then I will rejoice in that. That will be a glorious mercy to me. But imagine that you just bought a car, some kind of SUV, $25,000 or something. You go to make your first payment, and you find out that someone has gone to the bank and completely paid your debt. And now a debt that would have taken you five to six years to pay off is gone like in an instant. Someone poured out a great mercy upon you and you don't have this two, three, four hundred dollar bill every single month because you were given a tremendous mercy. You would feel the wonder of that kind of mercy because the debt was greater than 20 bucks. And the more we understand of the debt that we owe to God because of our sin, the more that His grace becomes glorious to us as we see the exact amount of mercy that He has poured upon us. So I've learned in my walk with the Lord, when I come to a text like this and I begin to feel sadness, I don't hold it at arm's length. I just let my heart feel what it feels, knowing that when the time is right, the Lord will allow me also to feel the glory of His grace. And I want to commend that way of thinking to you as well. With that, let's turn our attention now to the text. And I want to just read quickly again verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the Bible's very clear in texts like Revelation 12, 9 and following that this serpent in the garden was in fact Satan himself. I do believe that the serpent in this story was actually some kind of snake or a serpent because of the kind of language that's used in the Bible. If you look there at verse 1, it says that the serpent was more crafty than what? Than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then later there's a curse put upon him that he's going to walk on the ground. So somehow or other, I do believe that this was a, a, a literal snake. I don't know how a snake gained the ability to talk. It's not something you see every day, right? I know lots of you have had pet snakes. I'll bet you none of them, like your parents, have ever talked back to you. But I think of the story of Balaam's donkey. Remember that story? And God gave a donkey the ability to talk. I may be a case in point of that myself. And so God has all power. He created all things. If he wanted to give the ser- a serpent an ability to talk, then he can well do that. But I feel pretty convinced in my mind that in Moses' mind, this was an actual serpent of some sort that had approached Eve. But whether or not you agree with me about that, I think that the more important thing here is that this serpent was crafty, as it says in the ESV and a couple other of your versions. That word's a very interesting word because it literally means to be wise or to be skillful. So this serpent was wiser. It was more skillful than all the other beasts in the field that the Lord God had made. But in this case, the serpent, who is clearly Satan, uses his wisdom to deceive And so in his case, his wisdom is craftiness, it's shrewdness, it's deceit, it's undermining people. So his knowledge of truth was very great. His knowledge of human nature was great. His knowledge of tactics to trip people up was great. And he knew exactly what traps to plant that would likely trip up the man and trip up the woman. And so he decides to make his initial approach not to the man, but to the woman. Now, some have suggested that the reason that the serpent went to the woman first was because women are more gullible than men. But I don't believe that that's true at all. I think that the serpent went to the woman in order to undermine the authority structure that God had set up. Satan always does this kind of thing, even to this day. In homes, in churches, in workplaces, in the world, Satan does whatever he can to undermine the authority structures that God has set up. So I believe that he went directly to the woman for that reason. But you have to remember, in verse 6 we see, Adam was right there the whole time. The man was standing right there the whole time that this happened. He wasn't in some other part of the garden. He was listening to everything that was being said. He was watching everything transpire. If she was gullible, he was even more gullible. Because he had the leadership mantle upon him. And his job was to stand up as a man of God and say, No, Satan. No, serpents. We're not going to listen to your wisdom. We're going to listen to the Lord our God. We're going to trust Him. We're going to walk away from you at this moment. That was Adam's job. If anything, Adam was much more gullible than Eve. 
But I, again, I believe that the serpent did this to undermine authority. He does that even to this very day. He loves to try to reverse what God has set up. Whatever motivated the serpent to approach his deception in this way, notice what he does. He begins by misstating what the Lord actually said. He first suggests to the woman that the Lord had said they couldn't eat of any tree in the garden whatsoever. And beloved, I I look at that and I realize this is one reason why we really have to know the Word of God as well as we possibly can. Because the devil will come to you who don't know the Word and he will misquote it to you. He will completely misrepresent the Word of God to you. Now I know that in the desert of temptation, when the devil was tempting Jesus... He quoted the Scripture accurately even though he twisted the meaning. I know that. I know he has the ability to do that. But I think we need to learn from this text that he won't always do it that way. He will misrepresent to us what the Lord has in fact said. And if you don't know the Word, how will you know the difference between what Satan is saying and what God has said? So we need to know the Word. The reason so many people are being deceived into churches like the Mormon church is because they don't know the Word of God. And the devil has come and said, has God really said thus and so? We need to know the Word. Praise be to God, the man had done a good job of instructing his wife and she knew exactly what the Lord said and she went back and and quoted to him verbatim exactly what the Lord said. No, he didn't tell us we couldn't eat of any of the trees. That's not true. He just said you can't eat of that one tree. And so seeing that the serpent's tactics couldn't work, he decided to change his tactics a little bit. And instead of now challenging or changing the specific words God had spoken, he impugned the Lord's motives in doing so, and he called the Lord a liar. He essentially said to the woman, listen, okay, that's what God said to you. You can eat of all the trees except for this, just this one. And he said to you that the reason is because if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. But you're not going to die. The real reason he doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because he knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. You're going to be wise like him. You're going to have insight like him. You're going to have power like him. You're going to have a deeper, higher, greater joy like him. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be God. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so he has said, don't eat of the tree. Isn't it interesting that even though the man and woman had been made in the image of God, the heart of the temptation was that you can come and and really be like God? God has imaged Himself in you, but it's not enough. There's more. You can be more and more and more like God. Satan hasn't changed his tactics from that day to this day, beloved. If he can't deceive us by misquoting the Word to us, then he will impugn the motives of the Lord, or he will twist the words of the Lord to mean what he wants them to mean. And we have to be on our guard. He has a lot more experience now than he had then, but his tactics haven't changed a bit. Now, unfortunately... With this tactic, the serpent succeeded at getting the woman and the man to shun the wisdom of God and do what they thought best rather than what the Lord thought best. And notice the woman's reasoning as she went to approach the tree and eat the fruit. She thought three things. First of all, she said to herself, listen, this fruit is good for food. It looks just as good as anything else in the garden. I bet you it tastes just as yummy. It will satisfy my body. It will give me health and life. This stuff's good for food. And isn't that the way that temptation always starts in our lives? It always starts with the eyes. As we put our eyes on things that God has forbid us and we behold them, we think about them, we consider them, and we begin to talk ourselves into the idea that they're not as bad as they could seem to be. They're not as bad maybe as the Lord has said they are. 
It all starts with the eyes and then in the mind. This thing's actually good for food. It's good for food. This leads to the second thought. Not only is it good for food, but it's delightful to the eyes. Like all the trees of the garden. I don't know what this tree looked like, but apparently it was beautiful. Apparently the fruit gave joy just to look upon it. And she thinks to herself, if it's so beautiful and it's good for food, how could it in fact be bad for me? It can't be that bad. Perhaps I should eat it. And then number three is the real kicker, I think. She said, not only is it good for food and delightful to my eyes, not only does it give me that kind of joy, but this stuff will give me wisdom. This stuff will give me insight. This stuff will lead me to a level of life that I've never been at before, and I want that level of life. And no matter what God has said, I now see a path to getting the things that I want out of life. I don't know how this train of thought sounds to you, but it sounds awfully familiar to me. Because I can't tell you how many times I've laid my eyes on something that I want and begun through a number of means talking myself into thinking that it's not all that bad. In fact, it's probably pretty good. In fact, God would want this for me. God would want me to be happy. Not only is it good, not only is it joy producing, but it'll give me wisdom. It'll bring me to another level. It'll give me something in life that I don't have now. And even though God has clearly said, don't go there, I begin talking myself into this. As I meditated on this story, beloved, I thought to myself, I I don't know Adam and Eve, we've never met them, and, and maybe someday in heaven we will, but we are so much like them. I know I am. The processes that happen inside their heart are almost an identical mirror of my own heart. I see myself in here. I see the devil doing this kind of thing to me on a daily basis, and I see my heart wanting to go his way rather than the Lord's way. With this, the woman took of the fruit of the tree and unfortunately she ate it and she gave it to her husband and he also made a choice to take that fruit and he ate it as well and when they ate they found out that the devil wasn't completely lying to them when they ate the fruit their eyes were open to see things that they had not seen before their eyes were open to good and evil they had not been designed to see certain things about existence, to see certain things about life. But whatever that fruit was, when they ate it, it opened their eyes. All of you know I had uh, quite a drug history in my past, and I know this might sound funny to some of you, but I've eaten fruits of the earth before that opened my eyes to things that I had not seen before. And I'm not so sure that some of that stuff wasn't real. It's just that the human mind was never intended to go there. It was never meant to see certain things about existence. And whatever this fruit was, it opened their eyes. And to me, depressingly and interestingly enough, the the, the fruit of what they saw was not anything good, but it was a, a fissure now that entered into their relationship. They notice immediately that there's a nakedness about them, that there's a distinction, that there's a difference, and that they should hide from each other. Where did this impulse come to have shame and to hide from each other, and what's it really about? Well, as I've been telling you over the last two weeks, I don't think that the physical exposure in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 has mainly to do with physical life. I think it's a symbol of something deeper, that there was unity in the relationship. There was nothing being hidden between the man and the woman. That they were in a a, a deep communion with one another. And now that sin has entered into the world, the very first consequence of the sin is that there's a break between them. They didn't even sin against each other, but there's a break between them. And now they want to hide from each other. And they want to display that hiddenness with physical clothing. Sin, first and foremost, always has this consequence. 
Sin, first and foremost, is about relationship, beloved. God is profoundly relational, and He created us as well to be profoundly relational. To the depth of who we are, we are relational beings. And so every time we sin against God, we offend the relationship, and that's the life source of every other relationship we have. So even if I sin in a way that's, say, not directly against Kim, every time I sin, it it affects my relationship with Kim because this relationship is affected. When my communion with God is not right, my communion with one another can never be right. And sin always has this effect. To be human is to be in relationship. That's the primary thing that could be said of us. To be a sinner is to break relationships. And again, as a sign of hiding and brokenness, the man and the woman put leaves on themselves and try to hide their shame from one another. And then together they conspire and say, hey, let's hide from God. Thanks be to God, that doesn't work. God searches for them in the garden. And he finds them, he gets them to come out from the midst of the trees, and he begins to question them about what's happened. And here's another thing where I just saw myself right in Genesis 3. As soon as God began to confront them about their sin, what happened? The blame game started. It wasn't my fault, it was her fault. It wasn't my fault, it was the serpent's fault. Just like that. First, notice that God goes directly to the man. Why did he do that? If Eve was the one to first eat and then give the fruit, why did he go to the man? Well, because he had the responsibility. And therefore, he had the accountability. And he was standing right there the whole time. He was more at fault for what happened in the garden than Eve was, I believe. And so he goes to the man. As soon as the Lord goes to the man, he said, Lord, here's the deal. Remember that woman that you brought to me? That woman that you created? Yeah, that woman. I mean, she's beautiful. She's nice and everything. But this time, it was her fault. She took of that tree. She tempted me with the fruit, and I took and ate it. I took and ate it. Now, I was surprised to see that the Lord actually kind of honored this train. He didn't say another word to Adam. He turns his attention from Adam and he goes right to Eve. But the first thing she says is basically the same thing. Lord, it wasn't me. It was that serpent. He came into the garden and he deceived me. And having been deceived, I took of the fruit I ate. I blame, I blame, I blame. I don't take responsibility. This is a reflection of my heart. It's probably a reflection of everyone's heart. We love to play the blame game. And interestingly enough, the Lord keeps following it. Now He turns His attention to the serpent, but this time He doesn't give the serpent any chance to answer because the Lord knows what the deal is, and so does the serpent. So the Lord goes immediately into His judgments, and in the case of the serpent, He pronounces two things. First of all, He says that above all the livestock, all the beasts of the field, you will be cursed more than all of them. You will have to walk on your belly and eat dirt all the days of your life. Second thing, and more importantly in my mind, He said, between you and your offspring and the woman and her offspring, I will put opposition, I will put enmity, you will bruise His heel, He will crush your head. I do believe this is the first very explicit mention of the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And I do believe that this is symbolic of demonic beings and human beings being in opposition to each other. Demonic beings will harass human beings, but human beings in Christ will one day crush the head of the serpent and overcome him. So even here, where God is pronouncing judgment for sin, which was right for him to do, he's already prophesying the greatest hope the world has ever seen. This is our God. 
From there, the Lord turns his attention to the woman, and he likewise gives her two uh, punishments. First of all, is that she will have a greatly increased pain in childbearing, and second of all, she will now have a, a kind of desire for her husband. And in the Hebrew language, that most likely means actually that her desire will be against her husband. Not for him, but against him. She will strive against him, but he will rule over you. And that word rule there means to dominate. It's sort of an oppositional kind of word. So I do believe that the Lord is saying, because you have not trusted me, because you sought wisdom in your own way, what you're going to end up having is not a higher joy, but a greater depth of pain. And in this relationship that was, was previously full of joy and communion and depth of intimacy, now there will be striving and opposition and a struggle for power inside the marriage. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you in, in, in subtle or not so subtle ways are striving for power inside your marriage? This is a result of the fall, I do believe. Finally, the Lord turns His attention to Adam and He only pronounces one judgment, but the second judgment pronounced on Eve really applies to Adam as well. So I I consider that a a sort of a shared judgment. And now the Lord pronounces uh, a judgment upon Adam and basically just says to him, you now when you toil the ground, you're going to pull out the fruit of the ground through great pain. It's the same exact word for pain here that he used about pain in childbirth for Eve. Even as there would be great pain in bringing forth life, now for you, Adam, the provider of the family, you will be able to provide, but it will be very painful. You will have to suffer now. Sin doesn't cause higher joy. It causes suffering at the end of the day. God had created for him a paradise that had to be worked, but the soil was so fertile and so fruitful that it was easy work, really. Now all of that would change and the ground would be cursed and it would be very, very difficult for him to bring forth fruit for his family. seems very important to me that right at this very point, the man gives a name to the woman that was distinct from his own. I've tried to be very careful to this point not to call the man and the woman Adam and Eve because it isn't until this point that they're actually called Adam and Eve. Before this, the word Adam was applied to both of them. Remember, I, I told you the word Adam is a Hebrew word that means humanity. And in Genesis 1 and 2, that word is applied to both of them, male and female, but one. The Ish, the man, the Isha, the woman, but one Adam, one human, one person. They're a plurality living in unity in this way, reflecting the being of God. But now that sin has entered the world, Adam takes that name on for himself and gives her a name which is good. It's a good name. It means to be the mother of the living or something like that. Eve, it's a good name. But it nonetheless implies difference, separation, and distinction where there didn't used to be that. Now that's sad, but right at this very point, God does something that to me is just mind-blowing that graphically prefigures what's going to happen on the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you didn't know the New Testament, if you would read this part of Genesis and get it, but knowing the rest of the Bible, it's impossible not to see this here when you're reading closely, when you're reading carefully. Specifically, God took an animal and killed that animal, something that had not been done from the moment of creation to this point in the history of the world. Blood from the beginning to now had not been shed. God kills an animal, takes the skin of that animal, covers Adam and Eve with the skin from that animal. Now, Leviticus 17.11 says, 
that the life of all flesh is in its blood. And God gave blood as an atonement for sin because the life is inside the blood. Therefore, when a person sins, innocent blood that signifies life has to be shed on behalf of the, of the guilty. And in this way, the innocent blood counting for the guilt of the sinner, the sinner can be forgiven. I do believe when God killed this animal, took the skin and covered Adam and Eve, it was a, an atonement for sin and a graphic summary of what He would do for us in Christ by covering us in Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this whole dynamic. He came to the earth, He took on flesh, when the time was full, He shed His infinitely valuable blood that whoever would believe in Him would no longer be lost in their sins, but would be covered in the mercy of God. To be in Christ is for the skin of Christ to be put on a sinner so that their shame is now hidden from God, so that they can now have relationship with God. They can now have relationships with others, proper relationship to all of creation. The shedding of the blood of this animal and the covering of the skin was a graphic prefiguring of the life of Christ. It was a graphic message to us that all who believe in Jesus will be covered and their shame will be taken away. Now, the Bible says things like this to us in Romans 16.20. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says to the believers, very soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That's a fulfillment of Genesis 3. And he's saying it to the believers, to us who believe in Christ. Your enemy will be crushed under your feet. Why? Because you're in Christ. And yes, the devil bruised your heel, but through belief in Christ, you have crushed his head. Beloved, I do still feel the depth of the sadness of the moment when sin entered the world because I so wish that our ancestors would have trusted the Lord and walked in His ways. But none of this was a surprise to God. None of this was a plan B for God. This was all in His design. He knew that sin would come into the world so that He could display His holiness that will not tolerate sin, His justice that must punish sin, and His mercy that will cover our sins. God in this story, displayed the fact that He was committed to do for us things that we could not do for ourselves. And this, I think this fundamental passion in the heart of God just escalates and escalates and escalates throughout the Bible until we get to Jesus Christ, to that final sacrifice that does away with sins once and for all. So at the end of the day, I, as a sinner, walk away from Genesis, yes, feeling a kind of sadness, but more so feeling a deep and rising hope that in God, in Christ, grace will prevail. If we will only believe in Him, He will overcome all of our sins. And so, as I said at the beginning of this message, Genesis 3 displays things to us about God that are equally as glorious as anything we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. There we saw His sovereignty, His power, His wisdom, His goodness, the depth of His relational nature. Here we see His holiness. We see His justice that meets out punishment just as it ought to be meted out. And we see His mercy that is eternally committed to overcome sin. And I praise Him with all of my heart for that. I want to invite you 
to just meditate deeply with me on these things this week, to think about the nature of sin, and not only their sin, but your sin, and let, let the weight of it land upon you, because as you do that, and keep meditating on this chapter, the weight of the glory of grace will also land upon you, and I do believe your deepest, highest joy is found there. Let's pray. Lord, I want to close the way that I begin by just thanking you for who you are and how you do the things that you do. Lord, I am a sinner. I don't want to stand here and point the finger toward anybody else in the world. I am responsible for my own sin. And yet, by your grace, I have believed in you who is a greater Savior than all of my sin and you have brought me into a place of life and joy. And I want to thank you with all of my heart. I want to thank you with all of my heart for the other lives in this room that you have saved in this same way through Jesus Christ. And I want to pray now, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, I pray that this very day that they would look to Jesus Christ and believe in Him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And through Christ, I pray that you would remove their sin and bring them into the glory of your kingdom and into your family. Father, I love you for being a lover, for being passionate, for being intimate, for being relational. I love you for the fact that none of that has ever changed. I love you for the fact that the sacrifice of this animal in Genesis 3 and of Christ ultimately was designed to bring us back into that kind of relationship with you. Thank you for that, Father. And I pray that indeed you would bring us deeper and deeper into that now. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.